God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Joining us today, the Reverend David Appled. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing well. Good to be back on with you guys. Good. Glad to have you. It seems like it's been a while. Yeah, we've we've been off for a, a while. It's good to get the new season underway. All right. How, how's the weather in Paducah? Uh, weather's, it's gotten cold. It's gotten pretty chilly here. We actually had a, a hard frost last night. So driving my son to school this morning and he was trying to get me to explain to him where frost comes from. So that's a good good morning conversation. Nice. <laughs> Speaking of frost, Zelwyn, how are you? You mean permafrost? Right. <laughs> Things are going well up here. Just kind of enjoying the cold weather. It's been windy the past couple of days. And when I woke up this morning, it was kind of half blizzarding. So, But it seems to have calmed down and we're just kind of enjoying a nice, crisp, cold day. Zelwyn, when you're in your sod house, do you find it warm <laughs> in the winter or not? Is it insulated pretty well? Uh, it depends the, on which part of the house you're in, but okay. But honestly, <laughs> Delwin, which what kind of wood burns best in North Dakota? What what keeps you warm in the winter? I don't understand the question. What's wood? We don't have trees. <laughs> <laughs> Buffalo chips work well for fuel. Yeah, they 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 do the job. They do the job. <laughs> well, all right, gentlemen, we've come together today to talk about. A great book of the scripture, and they, of course they are all great books, but one that's particularly intriguing is the Epistle to the Hebrews. Before we get into the, into the nitty-gritty of all this, why, why a long discussion on the Epistle to the Hebrews? Well, I think there's a number of reasons and facets of the book of Hebrew that are, that are well, I guess, always perennially helpful, but in our times that are helpful. The one, to be honest, one of the reasons was I was talking with Zelwyn, and uh, he said, how about an episode on Hebrews? And I've Zelwyn and I have always shared a great love for the book of Hebrews. So after we discussed whether it was actually canonical or not, we decided, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. <laughs> it wasn't a long discussion, but go on. Now, what, what, was, what was the word fitly consensus on the canonicity of, of Hebrews? We're ready to accept it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good, good. Once in Conclave Part Three, we'll we'll formally adopt it into the Bible. Yeah, <laughs> these decisions can be made by us, after all. So. That's right. Well, you know, democracy. Yeah, we, we have to talk about this because there are people, and it's becoming. I don't know that it's, it's becoming more common, or people just are louder than they used to be. But people are slowly chipping away at these books and saying, "Well, they're not really scripture. You're only bound to the four Gospels." And maybe maybe some of the epistles, but certainly not Hebrews. And and so we kind of push back against that a lot because we need to. We need to affirm the canon of Scripture in this current year. Yeah. 
Well, I think even the the passages that that make Hebrews quote unquote a hard book, right? These passages about the impossibility of coming back from apostasy, apostasy. I actually I kind of like it for those very passages because, <laughs> which maybe makes me weird, but <laughs> but it emphasizes the the finality of what we have as Christians, the supremacy of Christ above everything that came before him. Fin- yeah, I guess, but no, I can't think of a better word for it. Maybe you guys can. The finality of what Christ has brought and the necessity then of perseverance and endurance. And I think in, in our, you know, in our time, that call for endurance, perseverance, for taking up the cross, for running the race, I think that's something that we talk about quite a lot. And it's something that that I find in my own congregation resonates with people. Whether it's just because it hasn't been impressed on them, I don't want to say that, but people are, are sensing, you know what, there is a need for perseverance as things are less and less, you know, easy for Christians. Yeah, absolutely. It's a book that is certainly doctrinal, but at the same time, it exhorts us to greater action and to be better men in the faith, or women, for whoever's listening out there. But it does encourage us to be strong and to persevere. It gives us the example of Christ and explains his work and ministry and what it was. But it also gives us the example of all the great saints who went before us, and specifically mentioning some of them by name. So it's a tremendous book with much to dig into. I don't think we'll get through all of it in this episode, and that's all right. One of the things I think we need to handle is that we've kind of alluded at already would be the issues surrounding its, well, I guess you could say its canonical status, as well as the question of why it's questioned, you know, why its uh, status in the canon is questioned at all, you know, because this yeah. is where you get into the great debates about the homina, legomena, and the antilegomena, and what that means and how we should understand that. And I know that that's actually a question that some of our listeners have asked about is, you know, how should we understand the antilegomena within the New Testament and what that even means? So do we want to maybe start there first? I think specifically with Hebrews, yeah, specifically with Hebrews, it comes up, I guess, as an issue I'm I'm hoping that most of our readers are are very familiar with the book, but there's a chance that that might not be true. It it is different in tone than the other epistles, and I'm not talking about style because I don't feel, you know, sometimes this gets brought up. Well, the style of the book of Hebrews is very different than the style of Ephesians, therefore, you know, it can't be by the same author. I don't go in for for that kind of a thing, but I just mean like the the type of writing that it is. You don't have Paul saying at the beginning, I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church, you know, in wherever it is, in Romans, to the Hebrew church in Romans. You don't have that sort of address and title. And so there, there is no self-identified author of the book. And I think that, that the lack of that identification has given birth, you know, in the history, and we, we should cover some of the, the different theories here, but but that lack is the reason why it's even questioned. Right. And so the, the whole category of antilegomena arises simply because there are questions regarding who wrote this particular letter. And of course, uh, the, the seven books that are in the New Testament that are considered antilegomena all have these kinds of questions of authorship. And so trying to determine the author as far as we are able to is, is a very live question for something like the book of Hebrews. Right. Well, it's 
And why is it live? <laughs> when it was pretty much settled up until the time of the Reformation, yeah. uh, you had you know by the fourth century, it's pretty much you know understood to be Paul's. Augustine affirms it, Jerome, others. It's still the majority consensus early on, but you do have other people proposed or proposed as authors, right? So Paul is you know the broadest consensus goes to Saint Paul, but what, what were some other potential authors? Yeah, the the other one that gets mentioned early on in the history of the church is Barnabas. And I can't remember the the church father who proposed this, but it was not, like you said, the majority view was Paul. And I mean, all the big names, right? Athanasius, Eusebius is quoting prior guys in his church history. So he quotes Origen, Clement of Rome, who who kind of gives us the first indication that um, it was scripture from the get-go because he quotes it in his, I think it's in First Clement, which is usually dated right at the end of the first century. So already at the end of the first century, it's being quoted as if it were. Well, oddly enough, level. some even propose Clement as the author. Yeah, that's true. Right. That's a good point. But, okay, so if, if he's quoting himself, I mean, we're we're talking about levels of strangeness that, you <laughs> right. know. I don't know. Yeah, you Paul. never sat through a class where you always had to buy the professor's book? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> you know, the modern, the modern author is maybe a little different <laughs> than the, you know, the early church fathers. But so, so Clement gives us this witness early on, but I, and I can't remember who says that it might've been Barnabas, but the idea was that, that we thought that, or the, the fathers thought that Barnabas had written a letter. And when it turned it, so you have the epistle of Barnabas, this is usually collected among the apostolic fathers, right? I don't know how familiar you guys are with Barnabas, but that later turned out to not be, you know, it was um, pseudepigrapha, right? It wasn't written by Barnabas, but there was this residual idea, right? That Barnabas had written an epistle. Well, maybe it's the one that doesn't have an author specified. So mm-hmm. Hebrews gets associated with Barnabas. Well, Tertullian is usually the one that's associated with that idea, David. Okay. Okay. That uh, Bar- that Barnabas was the author. Although I find it ironic that Tertullian is also proposed by some to be the author of Hebrews, but yeah. and it's Origen that proposes Clement or even Saint Luke. Yeah. Or- right. So Origen's here. Origen's is kind of an interesting one. Origen says it's certainly Pauline. Okay, so he's but he says that could mean that Paul wrote it, or it could mean that Paul wrote it in this is great, right? This is a great move. Paul wrote it in Hebrew, and then Luke translated it into Greek. <laughs> okay, well, if, sure. If if Luke translated it enough to the point that it's completely different from Paul's idea, I'm not really sure how you could say it's Paul's at all. Well, see, Origen, yeah, this this is why it's it's helpful to actually see what these guys said, because Origen is not a proponent of like non-Pauline. He's actually saying like, it is Pauline, whether that means Paul wrote it with his own <laughs> so, hand. I'm he, not he, saying it's the sacrament, but it is yeah. sacramental. I've heard this <laughs> right. before. <laughs> right. But, he, but sometimes, you know, you get, you get guys who are saying, well, Origen didn't think it was by Paul. That's not really what Origen says. He's mm. got this weird, you know, and he only proposes that as a possibility. Then he goes on to say, you know, who wrote it? Only God knows. Well, it's actually kind of interesting that in all of this, with the, if, especially since Origen is, you know, saying it's Paul's, but, you know, maybe, you know, someone else helped him. 
the the whole question of the of Paul's authorship in the book of Hebrews is really a Western church problem. Uh, the mm-hmm. Eastern church almost unanimously. Correct. I mean, they, they basically said, this is Paul. There's no question about it. So but by yeah. the time it gets over to the Western church, this is where the whole question of antilegomena comes in because the Western church said, not that we don't think that this is, you know, scripture. It's just, we've never seen this before. And so that's where this, this question comes in, you know, is this genuinely Paul's and the question, and you know, it's because of all these things you've been talking about, like, you know, missing an inscription at the beginning and a few other things, you know, kind of small details, they say, well, maybe there's some question there. But we should recognize that for a large part of the church in ancient history, there was zero question that this was a Pauline epistle. Yeah, right. And even in the West, it remains a majority opinion up until probably roughly the time of the Reformation, when right. things began to get really, really questioned. And, you know, then, but we're also, you can't really blame the Reformation for that, it's a simple case of we're moving from medieval scholasticism into the humanist era by that point. And right. so the, the, the inquiry changes and the discipline changes. And, you know, then the next thing you know, we're using every kind of Kabbalistic reasoning we can when it comes to dating and determining authorship and even interpreting scripture, it becomes just kind of silly. It's interesting that humanism, you know, wants to be, or wanted to originally get to the root and get to the basic sense of the scripture, and then sometimes they throw it away on the more rationalistic side of things. Whereas numerology, all these other weird things over here on the other side, tend to just confuse the text of scripture. But we should really just do a whole episode on that. But that's not what we're here today to talk about. (laughs) So, all right. So let's say, you know, for for the fun of it, that Paul wrote it. Let's just hypothetically agree with the majority of the church through all of time. <laughs> yeah, we got we got to mention one more thing because right. this this one, I, to me, this this is, I, I you know where the book of Hebrews fits in in like in our modern Bible is towards the end, but some of the earliest fragments or the earliest collections we have, Hebrews is almost always put in with the other Pauline epistles. And the one that I like the best is they they attach it right after Romans. And the Mm. reason, I think the reason why is one, because they thought Paul wrote it. So it's right with Paul's other epistles. And two, at the very end of Hebrews, you get this little note, like all all of the saints from Italy send their greetings to you. So the idea is also then that the audience is similar to the, the letter to the Romans. Well, that makes sense. So let's say it wasn't Priscilla or whoever, and that it was Paul. Is there any evidence for Paul's authorship? What might lead one to assume that? Especially towards the end that you were mentioning, David, I do find the the language of how the, the book of Hebrews ends to be very similar to the other Pauline epistles. You know, he's saying like, you know, the peace of God be with all of you. You know, our brother Timothy I'm sending him your way, that sort of thing. There is this these little clues every now and then that do point towards this being from Paul's hand, even if he never actually puts his name to it, right? So I, I just because, you know, maybe the external evidence is at least there's some questions there, I do think that there is a strong internal evidence within the book itself that points towards the hand of Paul. 
Yeah. I, when you start to, to look at the internal evidence, I, I think that books have been written both ways, that, that some, some scholars would say, well, you know, the language is different from the epistles, but then other scholars sort of say just the opposite. Look at all these overlaps between Pauline, you know, Paul's phraseology and Hebrews. So it's, it's really hard to, to make a determination, I think, based on internal evidence to say one way or another, like this is definitely St. Paul or this is not St. Paul. And that's why the external witness that we were talking about is, you know, usually if, if you don't view it skeptically, it usually leads you to say it's it's from Paul. I guess, I mean, I, I take the internal evidence as being a little bit more conclusive than that. I guess we'll openly disagree on, on word fit. No, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I take the internal evidence as, I mean, otherwise, what is this, the O.J. Simpson trial? You've got all this evidence pointing to something, but we're like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just not convinced by this big bucket of DNA all over them, all over these gloves and the murder weapon. Well, and, and I and I find uh, one very convincing argument to be, you know, well, Paul never put his name to it. Well, guess what? Most of the Old Testament doesn't have uh, names attached to certain books, and we don't deny their uh, canonicity whatsoever. You know, we don't know who wrote First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, but does that mean that they're not part of the Bible? It just means we don't know who wrote it. And what came first, you know, was chipping away at authorship and then later came the school of biblical study that chipped away at even pieces of certain manuscripts. So once you can take something broad away, like the authorship and certainly the canonicity, well, then you can take a book and say, well, we're pretty sure we know who wrote it. And we're pretty sure it's the Bible, except for these parts. Right. And then we can chip it away. Right. When we move away from what the church has said about what is scripture and what isn't, I think we're on shaky ground. Yeah. And we have to be careful. I mean, everything with a grain of salt, we need to study the scriptures diligently, especially when we talk about uh, the actions of the church, but we can't simply throw them away and say, well, you know, some guy in a, in a tenured position somewhere must know better because some dudes in the 19th century decided the Bible wasn't inspired anymore. I'm not arguing against the external evidence in any way, shape or form. Right, and I'm, and I'm not saying that that you know that we shouldn't look at it, and that David absolutely has an excellent point. I'm right. saying you put two, you, you put David and Zelwin together. Saint Paul wrote it. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean it, that's what it says in my Bible, guys. It says the the Epistle of Saint Paul to the Hebrews. So, like, what am I supposed to do with that? It just says it right there at the very top. Exactly. No, when you introduce the readings on Sunday, you're supposed to go, the author, whoever he was, we don't know. Maybe she. We're not sure. Maybe she. We, we, we can't be sure. You need to insert as much doubt as you can as you introduce the readings on Sunday. Correct. Because that's really helpful to everyone. That's really helpful to faith and to the unbeliever, or the, or the excuse me, the struggling believer. You know, it's it's funny. We want to be so clever. We're always so clever that we're willing to to dampen the smoldering wick or to break the bruised reed. Anyway, we need to wrap up this segment. Any last thoughts on authorship before we move on? You had mentioned earlier on, David, questions about style with regard to the book of Hebrews and how that's sometimes trotted out as a reason why Paul couldn't have written it because it's so different in uh, character. Well, for one thing, I, I think that 
the genre of Hebrews, maybe, which we can talk about after the break, is so different from the letters, the, the regular epistles, that there are certain different conventions going on here. And also, when we're dealing with the high rhetoric and the very nice, elegant style and the elegant Greek of the book of Hebrews, which is, you know, why Origen, for example, said maybe Luke wrote it. St. Paul never said that he was unable to speak rhetorically or unable to speak, you know, in a high style. He simply said he didn't use it so that nothing would get in the way of his gospel. And so I do think that he... I do think that he very much wrote it, and he was using all of his education to write it in this one particular instance. Oh, it's a very good point. We we see this in our daily lives. We speak differently depending on who we talk to. Our text messages are going to come across differently than sermons we write or, or articles or whatever. And you should hear what we leave on the cutting room floor here. So... Things become just different depending upon on context. Very good point. We're up to our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. Welcome back to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, and David Apple talking St. Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. Well, we talked about authorship a little bit there. Well, a lot, actually, which is good. So we're going to move on then into the book itself. And before we dive into the text, let's talk a little bit about what its context might be. When do you suppose the epistle was written? I would, I would say that, yeah, the epistle... To the Hebrews, the big number to keep in mind, I think for the whole New Testament, but especially for, for Hebrews here too, specifically, is 70. It's really hard to, to pin down dates before then, but I think that we can certainly set up like a ceiling here that there's, I, I think there's no way that the book of Hebrews was written after the year 70. And most people should know what happened in that year, but that was the year when the temple in Jerusalem was finally destroyed by the Romans. And the reason that that's the ceiling is because the book of Hebrews talks a lot about, compares Christ's entrance into heaven and his heavenly ministry with the priest's ministry in the temple in Jerusalem. And he's talking again and again at length about the supremacy of Christ over all this stuff that that happens in Jerusalem. And he speaks of the temple as if it's still there. Correct, exactly. Yeah. He, he, it would be the, it would be like the nail in the coffin if he could say, "And look, what happened to the temple? It's gone." But he never said, right. you know, well, how would you not 
use that. It's like the the preacher who has this great arrow in his bag and he's saving it for the end and then he never, you know, why would you not use that if it had actually happened? So because uh, he never uses that, and there is a, a reference at the end, I think at the, I don't know if it's in chapter 12 or 13, he talks about those who serve in the in the tent, you know, because he, he's been talking about tabernacle and temple as if they're one reality. Uh, those who serve in the tent have no right to eat from our altar. So he talks about it as if it's a present reality. And the destruction of the temple in general is something for broader biblical interpretation that everyone really needs to come to grips with. It is so essential in the history of the church and really the church going out into the world, the church finally becoming separate from simply a location, particularly Jerusalem. It's prophesied by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very significant event, and a lot of the way you read the Bible needs to be viewed through either a lens that is set before the destruction of the temple in the year 70 or the year the years following the destruction. Well, I was just going to mention also the references to Italy within the book of Hebrews, if I'm not mistaken. I don't remember. Where is that, David? Where it's, does... it's, at, it's almost the very end. Okay. You could, uh, with Paul in mind, you could even draw the conclusion that he's in Italy, which would be sometimes after the book of Acts, which would put the, the book of Hebrews somewhere in the 60s. Which would show that what, what the time period that uh, Paul is writing within and the kind of the situation that he's writing to is that increasing turmoil within Israel that is going to lead to the, the Jewish war, which will lead to the destruction of the temple. And right. so there is this kind of turmoil in the background that kind of helps us to understand what's going on in this book, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, just like Willie said that, before the pre seventy Christian activity is very much centered in Jerusalem. You get in the book of in Acts fifteen, you get Jerusalem as still the place where everybody's gathering together for big questions like should we be making the Gentiles become Jews? And of course the answer is no, but the point I'm getting at is Jerusalem's still the center. And that is because they're waiting for God to actually destroy Jerusalem. They know it's coming because Christ has prophesied it, but until that actually happens, you know, within a couple of years either way, um Jerusalem still is the the center of the earthquake if you will, right? It's the epicenter. But then after 70, Jerusalem, not that it disappears or it drops off the map, but it no longer has that same uh importance that it had before. And really I think a lot of it is because of the the importance of the temple that this was God's chosen place of worship. This is where he made his name dwell throughout the Old Testament. And even though Christ, right, Christ has become our temple, he's the temple made without hands, still we know from the book of Acts that the that the apostles were going every day to the temple and then coming back to their homes every single day. So it still had some kind of importance for the early church. Well, and it's it's interesting, and we'll get into this more as we get into the text, but Hebrews, since it does deal so much with temple worship and the impermanency of the earthly temple, is a great antidote to the dispensationalism so prevalent today in Christianity, particularly the idea that a third earthly temple must be built and animal sacrifices return 
mm-hmm. in order to bring about uh, Jesus Christ's millennial kingdom. We here at a word fitly spoken as Lutheran pastors reject that interpretation as unbiblical and part in part because of what you see in the book of Hebrews and how the temple is described and how the validity of their ordinances in this age of uh, Christ's life, death, and resurrection being complete is it's just it's no longer necessary it's no longer needed, and indeed it's borderline. Borderline blasphemous to uh, want to bring back animal sacrifices in light of what Christ has done. Yeah. Or just as blasphemous, I guess. Yeah, but. right. That's what I was just going to say. I think that's <laughs> part of why Hebrews is written. One of the things that is different about Hebrews than, say, like a book like First Corinthians or even Galatians, right? In, in those books, you have very obvious, like, now I will write to you concerning you know, a man sleeping with his mother, with his father, his mother, and his stepmom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Corinthians. Or Christians taking each other to court, right? You don't really have that, you know, now I will address this issue in the book of Hebrews. But I think what you can figure out from what's being written is there must have been a temptation to want to go backwards, to go back to the Jewish stuff, right? To go back to temple worship. And so what Hebrews does is say, we've got something way better, right? We have access into heaven, the heavenly. uh, We have a a greater high priest than any of these descendants of Aaron. Why would we go back? Yeah, and that is a pattern you see with the faithful often. Moses leads the Hebrews away from Egypt, and immediately they want to go back to Egypt. With the Reformation, it took generations to undo a lot of the teaching, the false teaching that had uh, arose in during the great tyranny of the papacy. And even today, there are people who would kind of sniff around at popish things and want to go back to that previous time thinking it was better or thinking that somehow we must still be beholden to things of a different age. Now, granted, Egypt and Roman Catholicism are different in that Egypt and the Roman Catholicism at the time of the Reformation and today represents something different from what God has laid down yeah. and what God has established. In the temple, you actually do have God establishing the worship there, but they want to extend it beyond its time. And there is a time where the sacrifices of the temple cease, and that is at the one great sacrifice, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. So they are different in that way. But nevertheless, I think the principle is true that wanting to go back where we were for whatever reason. Comfort in the case of the Egyptians, you know, supposed historical relevancy in the case of going back to Romish things or something like that. And then also, in the case of the Hebrews, perhaps they're simply trying to remain faithful to what they thought was the true faith or was still the mode in operation, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, because you can't overestimate the importance of the temple to the Jewish mind then, and maybe even in some degree now, because sure. as we as we see in like Jeremiah, for example, you know, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple was the visible sign that they believe that they thought meant that they had God's favor, and because this was the place where God had promised to be, this was the place that showed that God was still with them. So as long as they still had the temple. You know, who cares what's going on out there? It's just kind of, you know, God is with us. He's not going to send us away. 
Which is why even the apostles, you know, say to Jesus in like Matthew 24, you know, what wonderful stones and how beautiful is this place. God must certainly be with us. And for Jesus to turn around and to say something like these stones will all be thrown down to them is basically saying, you know, well, that means God's forsaking us entirely. Right. And it is interesting. You know, we, we mentioned the the drive for the even Christians to build a new temple, but there are Jewish people out there who want to, I mean, who certainly want to see the temple built. And they're always looking for that red heifer, you know, and, and shadows of temple ordinances are still there in the annual chicken sacrifice that certain sects of Judaism does. And I forget that <clears throat> I forget the Hebrew or Yiddish word for that ceremony. And I'm not going to Google it right now for the sake of um, pacing. <laughs> it's still there. That temptation's still there. Perhaps that's why we need to preach to these people more than simply affirming them in their belief, which is very common among preachers like John Hagee and maybe even Hal Lindsey and others who basically say the Jews are fine keeping their covenants. What they see is keeping their covenant. Right. And Hebrews is a great, again, a great antidote. I hate to keep repeating myself to this idea that the Jews need the gospel preached to them just as much today with a temple not standing than they did in a day when the temple is standing because they're still in need of the one thing, if indeed they'll believe. But in their obstinacy, they have continued on in the old pattern, not recognizing that the new has come, the newer and greater temple, the one built not with human hands. Didn't, didn't the author of the Hebrews say something about a partial hardening somewhere? There you go. And then we get, and you know, the same guy who wrote Romans mentions a similar thing. <laughs> what a coincidence. What can you do? All right, guys. So we're going with, it's written before the destruction of the temple. Right. And we talked a little bit about its canonicity. Uh, do we want to delve into that anymore? Or do we think we've, we've covered that ground pretty well? I think maybe as Lutherans, we should deal with Luther's objections to the book, even if just in passing. Because sure. Luther famously spoke some, I guess you'd say, not so nice things about the book. And that would be something that we would need to contend with, at least at least in passing. So what, what did he say, David? Yeah, you can find this in his, I think, the most concise form. He might have written about it in other places. But just in his little introductions to each book of the New Testament, he talks about how I think he, he singles out three passages that make him think that this was not apostolic. And the one is in uh, chapter 6, where yeah. it says, it is impossible to renew again those who have basically fallen away. Chapter 10 says something similar. If we continue sinning intentionally, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And then in chapter 12, I think... It's either 11 or 12 when Esau gets brought up. It says Esau sought repentance with tears but couldn't find it. And so what Luther says is this makes it sound like there's no repentance after. And I think that there was historical discussion about this. What do you do about sin after baptism? Is there any way for that to be removed from a person or forgiven? And of course there is. But when Luther read Hebrews, he at least said, look, these passages present problems for us and, you know, you can gloss them. This was what he said in his introduction. You can gloss them, but if you let them stand just as they are, kind of the natural reading is contrary to the rest of New Testament teaching. 
He also said weird. He said that it seemed to be sort of thrown together, which again, I yeah, don't know yeah. how. I don't know how. <laughs> who who gets to say that about books of the Bible? You know, I really think Paul should have written Romans a little bit in a different order. Well, thanks for your input, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> but at the same time, Luther says that it's also in Hebrews. This is just interesting to me. It's in Hebrews where you actually get the Lord's Supper described as the last will and testament, which he loved so much that he put into the German mass when he revises it. So, you know, with Luther, you what he takes away with one hand, he holds on to with the other. <laughs> yeah, it's a bizarre thing. Um, any more thoughts on Luther? Willie just wants to move on. No, 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 I'm good. I just want to make sure we're not missing anything. I mean, what, what do you do? I mean, well, it seems cobbled together. Okay, well, your table talk was cobbled together, Martin. I don't know what to tell you. Um, it's just gonna, it's just the way it is. That's, see, that's, that's the dangerous thing, though. That's the dangerous thing. And I'm not going to mention the, the fact that, you know, we, we're not, we don't subscribe to all of Luther and this, that, and the other, but that's the dangerous thing when you go, I have this interpretation and I don't like what this verse says about it. So I'm just going to cast it off. But we never do that. No, we would never do something like that. <laughs> so that's not a temptation common to Luther. That's a temptation common to everyone and something we need to be on guard with to let the scriptures norm us rather than us norming the scripture. Not saying that's what he's doing there, but he's he's starting to tiptoe into that. It doesn't sound right, so I'm going to just yeah, get right. rid of it. No, but in the case of Hebrews 6, for example, that is a, a bit spooky at first, right? It's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, you know, to be restored once they've fallen away. And so what do we, what do we make of that? And we'll, we'll get into that as we get into the text and what will undoubtedly be later episodes where, well, is it a case of the person dying apart from faith, right? Is, is it a case of the person just so hardening themselves here? Because Hebrews is going to talk about extensively uh, us having an advocate when we do fall. All this priestly language and language of atonement actually has to do with our sins and our continual sinfulness. So I guess we'll we'll wait to unpack Hebrews six once we get there. Yeah, the other the other part that Luther comments on is this, where it says, "What does it say?" It says something like, "You know, you should be ready for solid food, but you're still just little babies." Um, I'm severely paraphrasing, okay? Um, You're still just little babies and you need milk, right? I'm not going to lay again the foundation. And then he lists off these basic things that are foundational. And what Luther says in his introduction is is interesting to me. He says, those are the things he should have written about. (laughs) So we should always just deal with the foundational things. You know, but we come back to, you know, 1 Corinthians 3, I gave you milk because you weren't ready for solid food. Now we're back into Hebrews again. It's not Pauline at all, guys, just yeah. because he uses the exact same illusions and, and metaphors. Which is maybe kind of a long way of saying that, you know, just because Luther or some other authority says something doesn't mean that that settles the question in and of itself. They are, of course, men, and we need to approach the scriptures as the scriptures and deal with it as scriptural questions. Because, I mean, even, well, even thinking like Corinthians and say, you know, bap- you know baptisms on behalf of the dead. Mm-hmm. What do you make with that? Do we just say, oh, well, this doesn't line up, so we're just going to throw it out? Well, you can't do that because... Well, we recorded a whole episode on the temple in Nauvoo 
and the <laughs> Prophet Joseph Smith. You know, if you want to check that out. Yeah, well, that's that's a whole a whole other can of worms. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I mean, we think that because the anti the antilegomena that opens them up to being fair game for any kind of question. And then mm-hmm. we accuse people that you know lob the same kind of questions at the uh, the homonylogomena or the other books of the New Testament. Maybe we should approach these things with a little bit more fear and trembling than we have up to this point, and some humility. Which right. is, I guess, that's my nicer way of saying it. For once, I out midwesterned you <laughs> when it came to politeness contra bluntness. <laughs> you you have been in Illinois for what, Willie, like a year now? Coming up on a year, yeah, yeah. So maybe, maybe that nice has gotten to me. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's life is no longer Appalachian blood feuds yeah. and the, holding grudges and the shotgun shell. The uh, sauerkraut <laughs> has replaced the bourbon in your blood, and it certainly shows. Right, and my gout is as bad as ever. I don't really have gout. I don't want that out. I just want people to know that I'm not. I'm not that much into Martin Luther that I let that happen. <laughs> Well, all right, guys, any final thoughts as we head to the next break about uh, the dating or the authorship or the canonical status of Hebrews? Maybe uh, we mentioned it before, but just the the genre. I think it's fair to say, like, it is different than the other epistles. And But what what you do with that then, whether you say this is by a totally different author or if you're simply recognizing Paul knows how to write different kinds of writings, you know, a lot of people say it it reads a lot like a sermon. You know, it's and I think at the end in chapter 13 he calls it a a word of strong encouragement. You know, I wrote to you this word of strong encouragement. So it it certainly doesn't have the same structural markers that you find in an epistle. It is much more sermonic. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, no, I I think that's right on point because, you know, then that explains some of the things like why you wouldn't begin with, you know, introducing himself by name. It it explains why the rhetoric is much more, you know, put together kind of a thing. It would also explain why he moves through his subjects the way that he does, because he really is taking these giant themes and really kind of breaking them down into lots of different parts, which is something you would do in a public speech. By all means. Great stuff, guys. We've got to take a break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, Word Fitly Spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. This is a word fitly spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, and David Apple talking about the Epistle to the Hebrews. Well, we've talked about authorship, canonicity, and the dating of the book. 
So now it's time to get into the book itself. And we might as well start right at the first chapter. Who wants to take it away? If, if we're going to try to capture the whole theme of the book in one kind of a phrase, I think what we read for our introduction and the very opening verses, I think, does it. The, point, the, the whole book, if it's about one thing, it's about Jesus being superior to everything that came before him and that there's nothing, we shouldn't be expecting some further revelation. So this is kind of a thinking about the way that God's plan, certainly his eternal plan was always to send the son to pay for sins, right? He's the lamb of God who was slain from before the foundation of the world. That's another anti-legomenon reference there of Jesus, but be that as it may, um, (laughs) the whole thing, Hebrews just goes through a number of comparisons of Jesus to other Old Testament figures and says, Jesus is better. So pay better attention to Jesus than they did to the things that came before. And I find it interesting that the way that this comparison happens throughout the book of Hebrews is through the continual quoting of the Old Testament. I mean, this yeah. this book is just full of Old Testament quotations. I mean, even within the first chapter, you have like, what, six? I mean, yeah, there, he just, it says in one place and seven? in another and somewhere else. Yeah, he's, he's just chock full of it. And he's not even give, yeah, he doesn't give you the references. Yeah, isn't, isn't that a, a great way to, to cite the Bible too? It's written somewhere in there. That's how you preach, <laughs> now, isn't it, David? Yeah. Well, I try to, yeah. Some something someone somewhere once said. <laughs> but when we're dealing with the superiority of the sun then, where does Paul begin then with this comparison? How does he actually open his argument? Well, okay, so after he says that he's the exact imprint of God, the Father, he's the radiance or the effulgence of God's glory, he goes into this comparison with angels. One of the things that because he doesn't say, you know, now concerning these various issues that are happening in your congregation, you can you can try to sort of do a, based on what he writes about, based on what Paul is saying, you can try to say like, well, that must have been a problem for them. Okay, so the very first thing he's going to start talking about is angels. And so some people would say, well, that must have been a temptation for them. And it's certainly possible that they were going they were getting involved in some sort of angelic worship or angelic cults i don't know much about angelic cults so i don't know how much that helps us understand this I, other than just kind of the general thing that angels are powerful beings right and so if jesus is compared with an angel it's to emphasize that he is greater than he is better than any angelic figure that might come to you Yeah, because, I mean, within the Old Testament, you have all kinds of angels appearing here and there. You even have references to the angel of the Lord, which, of course, is the pre-incarnate Christ. But when you're dealing with this this question of, you know, what do we do with, with the angels, I do think you are right in saying, you know, this is his way of saying, see, even the, the most important of the, the spiritual creatures are still lesser than Christ. Because he's going he's gonna to go on to talk about the Mosaic covenant and the Mosaic rituals and all that sort of thing and talking about the superiority in that way. But this is maybe just kind of a way of starting maybe even in a little bit more neutral ground. Would that be fair? You know, start out soft and get into the hard stuff. 
it might be neutral, but there think of the I, I think it's in Galatians where Paul also says that the that the law was given through angels. Sure. You guys know what I'm talking and, and right. I've never quite understood that because like at Mount Sinai there's no reference to angels. You know, they actually hear God's voice from the clouds. But the angels were some sort of mediators there, apparently. And so I think the the emphasis in Hebrews one and going a little bit into two is the source of revelation, right? It's not just that we have angels giving us these things, which was great. You know, the angels were, like you said, Zelwyn, were powerful. And all through the Old Testament, you can see angels at key key places. I mean, even in the New, right, at the birth of Jesus, at his temptation in the wilderness, the, you see angels there. But the Son is superior even to these key figures in God's plan of of revelation. The Son is the source of the greater revelation. Paul is going to take it, though, in this natural progression here. So he starts with the spirits, and then Christ is going to be compared to who? Yeah, after the after he's done with the angels, he goes on to compare him to Moses. Right? I think that's the order. Yeah, in chapter three, he gets on to to Moses. So Which may well be another clue here that this was written before the temple. And that it's not just a, a certainly not a much later product. Right. Yeah, no, the, the importance of Moses too can't be under understated. I mean, think of even Jesus saying, like, you know, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Or, you know, as Moses has said, or all of these sort of things, Moses occupies a very high position within um, revelational history. So Moses is compared then here to a servant, right? So Moses is a servant in God's house, which he was a great servant, right? But he was not the son. And so the point of, of bringing up Moses is to emphasize that the son is greater than the servant. And you get this great analogy, right? The the builder of the house is far superior to the house itself. And so he's in the analogy there, Moses and everything that Moses gives in the Old Testament, whether it's the law or also Moses as the one who sees the pattern for the tabernacle and who then instructs the Israelites on how to build the tabernacle. He's just compared to the house itself, but the builder of the house is Christ, and he has the greater glory than the house itself. It's also interesting throughout all of these quotations, I'm just kind of looking at this again, how often he quotes uh, the Psalms to make his points. Something that, I, that, just in passing, you know, sometimes we think of the Psalms as just kind of being, you know, nice little bits of poetry that we can just kind of take and then move on. But the Paul is making his points of all of this, the superiority of Christ over the angels, superiority of Christ over Moses, through primarily the Psalms. And I think dealing with that and understanding that will help us to see that this has always been the point of this revelation. This is not something that is just isolated to just one part of the Old Testament. It's not like he's just making his points entirely out of the first five books. He's taking the Psalms, he's taking the prophets, and he's making this cumulative case that shows that, guys, this has been the truth all along. You know, st- you know, wake up and see it for what it is. Well, I think right? just like you said there, Zell, I would just point this out. He not only is he go, is he going to be going through all these comparisons of Jesus the greater you know greater than the angels Jesus greater than Moses Jesus greater than Joshua 
But the point of that is not just to say we have this really high Christology, right? right. Because in, in the midst of all that, he always sprinkles in these exhortations. So at the beginning of chapter two, he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention, right? And <laughs> that's like right in the middle of where he's talking about Jesus and the angels. And then when he's talking, when he finishes up this little section on Jesus and Moses, he says, so take care, brothers, lest there be any among you with an evil heart and you fall away, right? So the point of having a great revelation is not just, hey, don't we have this amazing, wonderful high Christology, but is the, the faith that receives that teaching, right? I mean, I'm not trying to say that Paul doesn't want people to have a high Christology, but he wants them to actually have it. So it's not just written in a book, but that they have this view of Jesus and hold fast to it. Are you are you insinuating, David, that one could be doctrinally orthodox and yet deficient, uh, spiritually deficient? That's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> it's would, all it's sola doctrina. I told you that's how we are justified. <laughs> I would never say such a thing, Zelwyn. <laughs> and Paul's not saying it either, right? No. <laughs> An- another thing for the Christian reading this is that, and we, and we hinted at this a little bit earlier, talking about the illusions that Paul gives and how they're kind of vague as it's written here, you know, or even the psalm quotes. It's not like he had chapters and verses where he, could just, he would just go, you know, quote them like, like what we do. He assumes a very broad knowledge of the Bible from his audience. Right. I mean, Moses is still a big deal. I mean, most people are going to know Moses, but, I mean, even the Scripture quotes— everything like that, the Psalms in particular, we miss so much of the Bible if we only read one part of it, or speaking to the pastors, perhaps, if we only preach one part of it. So you need to have a lot of the Bible down so you don't miss what he's doing here. I mean, it's still scripture when he quotes it, obviously, but it's nice to be able to hear and go, oh, okay, I know what he's talking about. I know where he's speaking because it gives us that fuller understanding of the scripture. None of these books exists in a vacuum. You have an excellent example of that, Willie, like in chapter nine, where he's talking about all mm-hmm. these things that were in the tabernacle, but he says, right. but I don't have time to talk about these, you know, right. or even in chapter 11, when he says, you know, time would fail me to speak of Gideon and Barak and all this sort of stuff. Having a solid understanding of the old Testament and a solid, you know, broad, just general knowledge is really going to help us understand what this book is doing. And for that matter, what the book of Revelation is doing, but that's a whole different subject. So, yeah. Right. And to just read the scripture and pray as we read it and, and seek understanding and seeking outside sources is perfectly fine and acceptable. You know, but we just read the text for what it is, take the text in and try to commit some of that text to memory. Don't just let scripture be a scavenger hunt for bread and chalices or something like that. <laughs> let the scripture be what it is. And then let the scripture open itself up to you as you begin to learn more of it and to recall more of it and to remember more of it as you get into the New Testament, where they're using those Old Testament texts, you know, in such a great way. Yeah, I think one of the one of the highlights of Hebrews is the way that it uses the Old Testament. And we would certainly say this is a Christological understanding of the Old Testament, but you actually see what that means in the book of Hebrews. So he's quoting Psalms as if Jesus were the one who's speaking the Psalms. So when we say this is a Christological Psalm, well, what, what, are, what in the world are we talking about? 
we're talking about what Hebrews is doing here, right? That Jesus Mm -hmm. is the actual speaker in the Psalms. And so when you're hearing these first person Psalms, now not in every single case, but very frequently, you can read them as spoken in the person of Christ or as if they were his words. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be like, you know, edgy or something. I just think we, we use these terms without necessarily always knowing what we mean by them. And I just, I only say that maybe as a self critique, because I've said stuff. And then in Bible class, people say, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Well, and if I can make one more point, sort of along this line, when we talk about the Psalms and the centrality of Psalms, not only in Christian thought, but for millennia in Christian worship, we would do good to go back. If, if you can't read anything else in the Old Testament, go back and read the Psalms. Then see how they're used in the New Testament, and then see how from Old Testament worship to New Testament worship, the Psalms are so consistently used as the songbook of the church, wisdom of the church, things like that. I wish we would spend enough time or as much time as we do on the Psalms as we do other forms of music within worship. Right. I would much rather, I would much rather see, you know, Psalms make a comeback in a, in a big way. And yet, and yet we're here like, well, maybe if we can fit a, a Psalm as a canticle in as one of the hymns, cause you know, we got the Psalm covered in the intro it or the gradual. Yeah. Right. So we're good. Right. You know, maybe we, they should be publishing uh, volume companions to the Psalm or to the Psalter. You know, maybe we should try that one out for size. I'm, I know there's commentaries, but maybe, maybe do that. We, we are so quick to want to read away from the Bible things about the Bible <laughs> when right. we should really be spending more time in the Bible, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Nothing wrong with reading things outside of the Bible at all, and and certainly if they help inform us about the Bible. But particularly in the case of Psalms, which are so central to the worship and life of the church, it seems as if they're neglected in favor of talking about worship songs or or even hymns and other things, when the Psalms are so much different and so much higher than what our pens could craft. But maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe the Psalms and the Bible just aren't clear and we need we need other things. I don't know. Well, no, I, I, I think it's a, a good piece of advice, like dealing with like commentaries and that sort of thing. And, and these extra biblical aids, they are wonderful things. They are great assist aids to our understanding of the Bible. But do we run to them first and allow them to shape our thinking before we even wrestle with the text of the scriptures? Or do we go to them after we have, you know, wrestled and struggled with it like Jacob and go on to say, well, what have other people said about this yeah, as well? And, and I think educationally, it's probably important to treat this like we would even the catechism or something like that, where we stress just memorizing the text first, explanations come later, which is really how we learn everything. So you don't want to open up the scripture and say simply, I can interpret this all myself right? and totally excuse any outside teachers or, or resources or anything like that. At the same time, you don't want to just read the Bible kind of piecemeal, depending upon which author you're really into. Let's see what John Piper has to say on Romans, and I'll and then I'll say, okay, well, I've read Romans because I read a John Piper book or a MacArthur book or or whoever. I'm not mentioning. You know, I can't. I'm not going to throw any Lutheran names out there just because somebody will get offended somewhere down the line. <laughs> but the idea is that you can just 
take as much in. Yeah, think about it and meditate on the scripture, certainly ponder on it. But, you know, don't go off the rails and say, well, I, I've received a revelation or an interpretation that nobody else has. It's simply to say, take in what you can, remember what you can, and then go and see what the scripture does with it elsewhere, or perhaps, you know, how it's interpreted here. And that's going to illumine you in ways that would surprise you. But yeah, Zelman, you're right. We don't go to those things first, or excuse me, we don't go to the outside sources as the primary sources. Right. And that's kind of how we see biblical debate happen a lot in a lot of circles. And it becomes an I follow Paul, I follow Apollos kind of thing. And, you know, one of the things I remember uh, vividly, uh, the things that stick with you in college is being in a class on Romans and somebody just quoting the text of Romans quite clearly making its theological point, and then someone interjecting and saying, yeah, but C.S. Lewis says different. <laughs> and going, Q-E-D. okay. Now, Q-E-D. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we've, we've gone off the rails somewhere here. And, and so we're not trying to, again, we're, we're not trying to be like Alexander Campbell here, who built his study with a lot of skylights and only brought a Bible into it, and so that the light that shone down from heaven would be the only thing that illumined him as he studied the Bible. Now, I'm willing to extend him enough charity to say that that interpretation is probably more his disciples magnifying it than something that he actually said, because I know the man did have a real library. But, but nevertheless, you don't want to have that attitude. I don't need anything else. The history of the church can't inform me, you know, lest we contradict the whole first segment of the episode. Right. But at, yeah, at the same time, you don't want to just simply say, well... I've read Luther's table talk where he quotes Philippians, so I'm I'm covered on Philippians, right? Or I've read I've read what Calvin has to say here, or I've read what Paula White has to say about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in Acts, so we're good. Yeah, we we don't want to do that. We want to have a you know a more holistic approach to Scripture, but above all things, we want to be in the Scripture as our primary norm and let the scripture interpret itself as it can. Guys, we're coming up on the end here, and I and we're going to get back to Hebrews in future episodes. Do you have any final comments on this epistle before we call it a day? I would just say kind of as that, that last section, which was a lot of fun, but I think the point of that is in connection with Hebrews. Understanding the Bible, having a familiarity with the Bible, wrestling with the Bible will help you to understand what it is that Paul is doing in Hebrews and seeing that broader general picture, which can only come from a daily engagement with the scriptures, is going to help us to really see his entire argument. So that's really what what we're driving at with this this last section of yeah absolutely all the external things commentaries that inform us the the teachers who inform us the hymns that help teach the faith all good things we just want to make sure that you're reading the bible and god's songbook too david any final words i would repeat what you guys said and i don't want to do that the only (laughs) thing i would would add in here is uh, we got through like two chapters of hebrews so that's a good to me that's a pretty good start i think Right, off to a good start. Well, guys, thank you so much. David, always a pleasure. And if you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi and David Apple. God love you, and God bless.
Now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.